The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasu, your host. I have Ellis Roberts, who's joining me today, who is the founder and CEO of BZ. Welcome, Ellis. Thank you. Very nice uh, to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, joining me. It's hopefully the rain won't be too bad today with the nor'easter falling, but good news about technology. We can continue doing what we need to do. Absolutely. We're definitely all used to this now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I know when we spoke, you gave me a little bit of background. I just, I would love for you to share a little bit of your own kind of career journey with our listeners, and then we'll dive into BZ and, and all the good things that you guys are doing. But just a little bit of background would be fantastic if you don't mind sharing with our listeners. Yeah, sure. Well, I started off my career in sort of making very transactional decisions and uh, <laughs> I saw the light and started making more purposeful decisions. But really things, things took off for me when I uh, joined Eli Lilly. I was on the leadership program at Eli Lilly. Okay. Uh, did a lot of different jobs, district sales management, marketing, market research, sales training, sales. I moved to the U.S. I was in the U.K. at the time. I moved to the U.S. to join a small startup company doing pharmaceutical market research online. That was back in 2001. More recently, I was the CEO of Ipsos Healthcare in North America, then took on a broader role within Ipsos, managing six different divisions in North America, and then decided to take the plunge and, and establish BZ, which is a behavioral science insights agency. That's amazing. Like, I think you mentioned that you had like over 600 people reporting to you when you were at Ipsos. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, yeah. My last role at Ipsos, CEO of Ipsos Marketing Practices, it was around 600 people. So yeah. what a big change then to go from that to then starting your own company. Uh, what made you do that? Uh, you know, it was all part of the master plan. I said, you know, I was very transactional very early on in my career. I made decisions based on things like, you know, would I have a nice car? Does it seem like it's an easy thing for me to do? I attended this one training course at Eli Lilly. It was a two-day training course. It was called The Winning Edge. It was run by a guy called Richard Jackson. And it's all around mindset management. And it really was an epiphany for me. It really forced me to look at myself and kind of get my act together. And part of that approach was about being purposeful in your planning, whether it's your personal, your career, or your financial goals. And I made the decision back then, it was 1997, that I was going to set up my own company, but I had no experience of doing that. And so actually, the reason why I left Eli Lilly to move to the US was to join a very early stage startup and expose myself to entrepreneurialism and also just test myself out. You know, am I scared of failure or am I going to challenge myself and get outside my comfort zone? And so 
every role I took on from that point was with a view to building a business. Even at Ipsos, when I took over healthcare, it was a very small group of, it was a very small team, even based within the consumer packaged goods team. And so we kind of pulled that out of the consumer packaged goods group, started really established Ipsos Healthcare, and it became 10, 12 times bigger than it was when I took over. But really, everything was practice run in some ways to set up my own business, which is where we are today. That's amazing. 1997, you decided that you were going to start a company and, and you kind of managed your career purposefully through the decisions that you made and ultimately got here. You know, I don't think a lot of people think like that, at least over such a long trajectory. So hats off to you on that one. I seriously credit it to this training program, The Winning Edge. And so, you know, I brought Richard Jackson over to the US um, when I was at Ipsos to train up some of the team. I've just had him run in sessions for my team at BZ. Wow. You know, it really was, you know, it was a game changer for me. I got to check it out. I do think that there is a certain, obviously there's so much behind the decisions that we make in our career, but many times, you know, I find myself when I make a decision, it's around, am I going to minimize risk or am I maximizing opportunity? And the behaviors are so different depending on which one you're doing. You know, I totally agree. I think that's a really... I mean, it's a really great way of looking at it. And, you know, a lot of us are shackled by risk. And I definitely, I definitely get it that it can be tougher for some people in their personal situations than for others. But, you know, I think part of it is just how you look at it, how you perceive it. So, you know, people thought I was a little strange leaving my role at Ipsos and, and right. establishing Beezy. For me, it made all the sense in the world. And actually, you can think of it from a behavioral science perspective. So first would be framing. I just looked at it as I'm either going to succeed or I'm going to learn a lot failing. I look at it in terms of context. If it fails, it's 18 months of my career. When I'm retired, I'll look back and that's just a minor blip on the overall long arc of your career. And then you know, I also thought about it from a regret aversion perspective. So I basically, I imagine myself on a rocking chair, you know, on the porch when I was 65 or what have you, looking back. And would I regret doing this? Or would I regret not having done it? And it was definitely, I would have regret not having done it. And so for me, it was just a very easy decision in the end. I love that. That's a great way to think about it. So tell us what BZ does. Yeah, sure. So we're a behavioral science-based insights agency. So, you know, if you align on the idea that the vast majority of decision-making is non-conscious, it's reflexive, it's habitual, it's automatic versus cognitive, then we've got to find a way to understand and to predict and to impact those non-conscious decisions. And so BZ, as a behavioral science agency, we're in the business of understanding and impacting decision-making. So whenever a client's you know, are looking to understand what they perceive to be maybe irrational behavior and then looking to impact behavior, that's where BZ is going to help out. And we help out you know, a lot of the, the major pharma biotech companies and consumer packaged goods companies primarily. So tell me a little bit about irrational behavior and rational behavior and how a business might or a marketer might think about those two types of thinking and behaviors. Yeah, sure. So, you know, 80, 90% of all decision-making is reflexive, 
uh, non-conscious decision-making. Some people will call it system one decision-making. You know, the cognitive decision-making is really effortful. It's, I think of it as the autopilot and the pilot, the brain. So, you know, the system one is your autopilot. That's the part of your brain that's always on. It's making decisions as quickly and as effortlessly as it can. You have to proactively switch on your pilot brain to override the autopilot. And that's something that we as humans don't particularly like doing because it's extremely effortful. It takes you know, a lot of cognitive energy. And so if so much of our customers' decision-making is that system one decision-making, we need, if we're going to execute on effective marketing campaigns, we need to understand that and know how to impact that. Without that, you're only tapping one side of the brain. And so what we'll say to our clients is, you know, yes, you're obviously in the business of persuasion, just as all of your competitors are, but you can get an incremental benefit if you can also tap in to the other side of the brain and nudge customers appropriately towards the desired behavior. Got it. And how do you go about doing that? We have very, very smart behavioral scientists. You know, behavioral science is the science of decision-making. It's a really meaningful, serious science. We take it seriously and we hire really top-notch behavioral scientists to analyze customer behavior. Uh, we do a lot of primary market research where we're we're really digging into what's going on beneath the surface. It's easy to ask a respondent, you know, what they prefer, how they intend to behave, how they've behaved in the past, but that often gives you just a small part of the answer or even sends you off in the wrong direction. And so for us, what we want to do is establish you know, a real strong body of facts and then infer and interpret based on behavioral science what's driving that behavior. And just as one example, market research tends to think that the power question is why. You know, why did you do that? Why do you think that? That's a question we'll never ask. Okay. And the reason for that is if somebody's decision is non-conscious, they literally can't explain why they made that decision. So why ask them? They're just going to post-rationalize their answer. And you know, what we're doing here is getting beneath the surface for clients. And that's why the clients that we've got, I think, almost we had one client last week say, you know, I'd love to recommend you, but I want to keep you a secret. I don't want to share. It's their competitive advantage. Yeah. I mean, think of it like this, Seema. If, you know, if you can better understand how your customers are truly making decisions versus your competitors, how significant is a, that as a competitor? Yeah, it's a huge competitor. It's invisible. It's sustainable. And it's a total competitive advantage because you have the opportunity to impact them more greatly. So give us an example a little bit. Like, so you said you don't ask why, because somebody might just rationalize the answer, even though it might be something that's, you know, unconscious, they just make that decision. Give a flavor of the types of questions or the types of data that your behavioral scientists would look at to uncover, you know, the drivers or the motivations to make a decision. Sure. Yeah. So this three broad approaches that we have. We either do behavioral audits based on prior research and external 
empirical research that's out in the public domain. We'll do qualitative research or we'll do quantitative research. Those are the three broad areas that we work in, but everything we do is, uh, has behavioral science you know, at its foundation. Probably, you know, let's take physician qualitative interviews, which we do a lot of for pharmaceutical companies. If you ask a doctor, how do you make your decision on a particular treatment? They're going to tell you the same thing every time. It's efficacy. That's my primary driver. Then it's safety. Then it's tolerability. It's simply not the case. The vast majority of market leaders in each category are not the most effective products. That's efficacy, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's efficacy. Yeah. So what clients will often come to us and say, look, our product's more effective than the competition. Doctors say they intend to use it. They're not using it. What's going on? Well, the fact of the matter is, is it's not just based on things like efficacy. So in that situation, we'll take a look at the, we may run a qualitative study. We'll look at the overall dynamics. So what we often find is that the product's efficacy is actually a barrier to it being used earlier in treatment. So if somebody has a condition and your product is perceived to be too powerful to start as a first-line treatment, it's going to get reserved. We call it you know, the nuclear option. Why would I use the nuclear option when I've still got conventional weapons that I can choose? Interesting. Very interesting. So in that instance, you've got two ways to change behavior. You have to either take a look at the problem, i.e. the condition, and make it more salient, the burden, the risk, you know, the need to be more aggressive in treatment, you have to look at reframing that condition or you have to reframe the product. And in this case with the product, you've got to make it feel less extreme. You've got to make the solution feel like more of a fit for the problem. And in that instance, it's not about promoting heavily on efficacy. It's about promoting on other factors that make it feel more approachable, comfortable, and reasonable to prescribe for that condition in an early line of treatment. Very interesting. And, and how many, to uncover that amazing insight, you know, how many physicians would you have talked to on a qualitative basis to get there? Yeah, so it absolutely varies, but we will have as low as 20 physicians and we'll be teasing out what I would think of as uh, really new, meaningful insights. Um, the very first qualitative study I remember BZ doing I uh, was for a pharmaceutical company. The country manager of that pharmaceutical company emailed me after the study results and said, and this was a product that had been in market for seven years. We're going to reposition the product as a result of this research. We're even thinking of doing a relaunch. And it was purely because we were looking at things from a different angle. We were trying to tap into the physician's non-conscious drivers of behavior they knew the conscious drivers of behavior back to front already. There's nothing we could do to help them there. That's quite exciting. And how did the relaunch go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I can't tell you that, of course, but no, no, they repositioned it. They didn't do a full relaunch. They repositioned the product, though. And actually, they repositioned it in a way that the example I just gave you, that actually applied to that product as well. I would imagine... The demand for your business is probably increasing given the current climate of, you know, what we've all experienced as a society as it relates to COVID and, you know, the election, 
so much our baseline understanding of how consumers think and behave is kind of ripped apart a bit as not even a bit <laughs> it's ripped apart like so our clients what are you seeing from a client perspective in terms of trying to understand you know what is what is that baseline now in terms of consumers understanding perceptions behavior as it relates to you know everyday life so i think it's brought the concept of irrational behavior right into the public discussion and people are looking that behavior on a really broad scale and trying to make sense of it. And it's very hard to make sense of it. And in those instances, it's penny drops for people. It's clearly not necessarily logical or rational behavior as we would think about it. If you understand behavioral science, though, you can absolutely understand why people are behaving as they are. Habits, biases, beliefs, sense of identity, context. These are all factors that are outside of people's attitudes, but have a significant impact on driving behavior. And behavioral science is really about filling in around these attitudes. So people used to think, and myself the same, that if you wanted to change behavior, you had to change people's attitudes, that that was the route to behavioral change was through attitudes. Well, beliefs, sense of identity, biases, heuristics, or mental shortcuts, the context in which you make a decision, perception of risk, cognitive overload, emotional stress, all have a modifying impact on your, on your attitudes, which therefore drive a different behavior. And so I think people now are seeing that clearly exhibited out there. And so I think they make, it's, they're much more receptive to the concept of behavioral science. To your point, they're open to it. They understand the need for it since people are, um, you know, again, I think of like tracking research, right? People are changing their behaviors and brands and agencies are not fully understanding why that's happening. So I can completely understand the value of kind of digging further in to understand what's driving those changes. Yeah. So um, give me an idea from, first of all, your job sounds amazing. Do you actually get into the research being CEO and founder of the company? Do you get to look at all this data and, and participate as well? It, absolutely in the thick of it. And you know, for me, it's fascinating. I'm not a behavioral scientist by training, so I don't consider myself an expert. I'm, you know, my focus is on uh, commercial impact. Behavioral science for me is the vehicle. It's the driver to help clients have improved commercial outcomes. And so my role when I'm on projects is really to ensure that the rigorous science is pulled through to practical guidance, practical recommendations for how clients can make uh, stronger business decisions and ultimately benefit from those decisions. But I'm very heavily involved, as you might expect, for a relatively small agency. Sure. Yeah, no, that, and also it seems like it's very intellectually stimulating and interesting. So not, and every day probably is different depending on the project that you might be working on. For sure. It, I think that's what attracts people to BZ, the candidates. They see, if they've worked in the market research industry before, they tend to have this sense that something's missing, that there's a gap in explaining behavior, but they're not necessarily sure what it is. They just got this uneasy feeling about it. And so they hear about what we're doing and start to think, wow, that 
could be the missing link that I've always thought about. And then on the behavioral science side, people who are trained behavioral scientists, of course, they take the science really seriously. And BZ is a great home for them because we, we do as well. So, Alice, you made this big jump. You founded your company. It sounds incredibly valuable, interesting, and successful thus far. What are some of the things that you kind of keep in centrally in your mind as you continue to grow and run your business? So, the reason uh, for starting BZ in, in particular, you know, I talked about personal challenge, testing myself, getting outside my comfort zone. But the other piece for me is I want to have an impact. That's the measure of whether I'm doing well personally. You know, when we talk about identity, I'm somebody who has to feel like I've had an impact. And so a big driver for setting up Easy was I genuinely think that there will be an inflection point in the market research industry. There'll be a before and after behavioral science. And I really want Beasy to have played a role in driving that upgrade in the market research industry. So first of all, I want to be able to look back and felt, feel like, yeah, we had an impact on the industry, not just on a company, on an agency. And so for that to happen, scale is incredibly important for us. So if we're just a 15-person agency forever, the likelihood we're going to impact the market research industry is very low. So a big focus for my team right now is technology, leveraging technology in the service of behavioral analysis uh, so that we can scale up what we do at a much greater level. Got it. And are there a lot of tools and platforms that could assist in that? It's definitely heavily weighted towards machine learning and natural language processing. That's where we feel the greatest opportunity is. In the most, like when I think about those two tools, which I think are incredibly robust and interesting, it's so hard to give up control in some ways to say, right? Like how do you, it's almost like you have to do parallel tracks, right? You do it the old way, you do it the new way and you see the differences that are put out. How do you guys approach that? We're right in the middle of parallel tracking right now. Ah. Yeah, we're right in the middle of it. Actually, a, the project that we started yesterday is uh, we, we've developed the model that needs to be further trained. And so we're actually running parallel tests right now with our behavioral science scientists analyzing data, plus our machine learning model analyzing data. And we're going to continue to train that model to try and improve its accuracy. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing. But I don't think there's ever going to be a point where it's not human assisted for us, because there is a, a reasonable amount of judgment when it comes to behavioral science analysis. And we think the model will take us so far and we'll need some human supervision of the model. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it's scary to think otherwise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I may put myself out of a job soon. I've got to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we do talk about machine learning, particularly, and when people continue to say that we got to, you know, train the model, we got to feed the right data set. And that is all subjective, right? And it requires judgment in terms of what the inputs are to understand what the outputs are. Totally. And you see that with some of the bigger companies now with unintended consequences. Yes, for sure. You know, with Google and Facebook, et cetera, they may be running AI algorithms, you know, with the best will in the world. 
but unsupervised, you can have un unintended consequences. And obviously for us, that unintended consequence would be something that would impact our clients. So we're going to be extremely careful that that doesn't happen. Alice, thank you so much for joining me today. I truly enjoyed our conversation. Uh, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate the discussion. Of course. And if people wanted to learn more about your company, where can they find you? Yeah, definitely. Go to uh, www.bzstrategy, so B-E-E-S-Y strategy.com. And uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions that you've got. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.